0: Welcome to GemCast, the geriatric emergency medicine podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GemCast is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Welcome back to GemCast. I am here with one of our fantastic guests who has been a regular feature on GemCast, Dania Kuja. And Dania, every time we talk, you are in a different city or a different country. So tell us about where you are right now.
1: So first of all, thank you so much for having me. You know how much I enjoy being on this podcast with you and talking about older adults. Um, I am now actually in Qatar Uh, because the Arab Cup is here, which is football, or what's called football in the rest of the world. It's soccer um, for people in the U.S. So I'm here as part of the support team,
0: and it's been very warm and fantastic. That sounds so exciting. I want to just have A live action map of where in the world is Dania, just so I can track you. Can we just, can we put like a GPS tracker on your phone? So I'm like, oh my gosh, she's in Qatar. Look at that. She's in Beijing. What is she doing? Who knows? But in your other spare time, when you're not globe trotting and uh, taking care of people internationally, Dr. Kuja is an emergency physician and just a fantastic advocate and educator around geriatric care. So today we are going to talk about an article that came out in 2021 by Mary Scott and Stephen Lang, and it's about infections in older adults. And this is such a great topic to bring together so many themes and geriatric syndromes. We've talked previously about UTIs or about delirium and infection, but we've never just kind of covered the swath of infections in older adults. So, Danya, you are the one who had the idea for this session. Why is it so important to talk about infections in older patients? So infections are pretty common in older adults. They actually represent
1: 13.5% of all ED visits in older adults, which is more than both MI and CHF combined. And older adults have a, an increased morbidity and mortality when they have infectious diseases, partly due to the delay in diagnosis whether because they come in presenting atypically or because we have difficulties in obtaining the accurate history. In addition, they have underlying comorbidities, multi-drug resistant organisms. So all of this combo makes it incredibly important for us to talk about infections, because there's a lot of them, and the outcomes are not good if we don't do what we need to do really well. So hopefully, maybe talking about that is gonna help us kind of move forward and do what
0: we need to do a little bit better. Yes, help us identify, Diagnose, manage, and um, communicate better around infections. And you'll notice a few themes. Those of you who have listened to any Gemcast episodes before, you'll notice a few themes that Danya mentioned that will come up. One is those atypical presentations, another is the underlying comorbidities and how those interact with the presentation and then another is the worse outcomes in terms of higher rates of morbidity and mortality so let's start with the atypical presentations in the terms of infections why does that happen physiologically here well first things first older
1: adults have a loss of integrity of the physical barriers like thinning of their skin impaired gag reflex And also they tend to have a lot more iatrogenic implanted devices than younger folks, things like pacemakers, prosthetic joints, and so on. The other thing is that they have decreased effectiveness of both their innate and their adaptive immune system. And this chronic state of this natural immunosuppression is what we call immunosenescence. And that's pretty common in older adults. On top of that, there's sometimes additional immunosuppression, either from a disease process or from the treatments we're giving them. All of this combined leads to these atypical presentations, things like confusion, fatigue, difficulty ambulating, decreased appetite, things that don't make us think of infection, but just make us think of, ah, there's something going on.
0: Yes. And a recent episode we did was on failure to thrive and frailty and how those terms are often confused or are ambiguous. And this is a great example of a patient may come in just weak and dizzy or not acting herself or, you know, failure to thrive, no appetite. And that should trigger us to think about, okay, is there an underlying infection? Certainly could be other things, metabolic disorders, cancer, all sorts of things, but infections should certainly be on the list. So what are the most common infections that we see in the ED for older patients? Well,
1: pneumonia is your number one killer in older adults, and it is the most common infection in community dwellers. UTI, is the most common infection in nursing home patients. The third
0: most common is septicemia with an unclear cause. Well, let's start with pneumonia. You said that's the number one killer. So how should we think about pneumonia and presentations of pneumonia in older patients? So the classic triad that we learn in medical school
1: is fever, shortness of breath, and cough. And if we wait for these three to show up in older adults, then we're gonna end up missing 40% of those coming in with pneumonias, because they're not going to have that classic triad. One thing that's quite sensitive to pick up pneumonias is tachypnea. So sit there and count your patient's respiratory rate, because not everybody has a respiratory rate of 20. We usually think of chest x-rays as our diagnostic method for pneumonia, and you know they can work, but sometimes it can be negative for a whole bunch of reasons. Now, if we have a high clinical suspicion, we can either get a CT if we have access to that, and if the patient Amenable to that. Or we can actually do what the IDSA recommends, which is empirically start the patient on antibiotic and get them back for an x ray in 24 to 48 hours, which may be an appropriate thing to do in your well appearing older adult with no comorbidities, with good follow up, who obviously does not look ill. When you're thinking of someone who has a community acquired pneumonia and they do not look right, they're severely ill, you should get a pneumococcal antigen and a Legionella antigen test. And you should definitely get cultures on those patients as well, both blood and sputum.
0: So what about in those cases where it's not as clear? So they don't look severely ill or like they need to go to the ICU, but you don't feel like they're necessarily great to, to be discharged. How can we help make that decision? Well, I wish I had
1: an answer for you other than clinical gestalt, because we like to talk about the curb 65 a lot, but it's actually not that accurate in older adults because there's way too much emphasis on age and it does not actually incorporate the underlying comorbidities.
0: So I guess you gotta go with that gut feeling. (laughs) That good old clinical judgment. And I think a a lot of times with older patients, it comes down to how they look medically, but then also how how well they function overall. What social support do they have? Is this someone who's telling you, no, no, I really wanna go home. I can come back tomorrow if I need to and they have access to transportation, or is it somebody who is really kind of tenuously getting by at baseline, and now this could tip them over the edge, or they may not be able to call for help, they don't have family living with them, or they don't have a caregiver who can say, okay, you're looking worse, let's bring you in. So it's kind of holistically looking at all of those things. Now, let's think about antibiotics. What are the current guidelines for that? So, if patients don't have any
1: comorbidities, then amoxicillin, doxycycline, or a macrolide are the way to go. If they do have comorbidities, then just upgrade the amoxicillin to with clavulonic acid, or you can add a cephalosporin to your doxy or your macrolide. Now, the guidelines technically do recommend a respiratory fluoroquinolone as an option. However, the authors very appropriately caution against that because in older adults, you have the risk of aortic dissection and aortic aneurysm rupture. An important pearl as well, that they mentioned in this article is that in patients with a pneumonia who test positive for the flu, just go ahead and treat them with an
0: antiviral irrelevant of the timing of symptom onset. Interesting. And here we are on the cusp or already entering flu season for 2021. We're recording this in December. So we'll see once this comes out where we are, but of course, when we're talking about respiratory viruses in this day and age, we cannot fail to at least touch on COVID and COVID pneumonia. And I don't know about you, Dania, but I've been seeing certainly this year, fewer older patients compared to a year ago when the vaccine was just about to come out. Uh, Certainly back a year ago, we were seeing a lot more older patients with respiratory symptoms from COVID or COVID pneumonia. This year, fortunately, more vaccinated older patients. So not as common. What's been your experience with that? I absolutely agree.
1: It's been less older patients with the vac- with the vaccines since the majority of them are vaccinated. The other thing that's also been pretty helpful is that um, monoclonal antibodies are an option for your older adults, um, who are over 65, or even those that are younger than that with lots of comorbidities, If they're coming in with mild or moderate symptoms before they get super sick, that is an option. So definitely both the availability of that, the vaccines has definitely changed things a lot for this population. And it's definitely something that I'm grateful for.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so we have a plan for our patients with pneumonia. Now let's switch gears to the second most common infection, UTIs. Tell us about that. Well, you and I have talked about this before in a prior
1: podcast, but you know how much I love to talk about this. So we're going to talk about it again. It's incredibly important to understand the difference between UTIs and asymptomatic bacteriuria. A UTI is basically when you have bacteria in the urine causing symptoms. Asymptomatic bacteriuria is when you have bacteria in the urine not causing symptoms, and they're just hanging out there, minding their own business and doing absolutely nothing. And it can be really tricky to figure this out in real life, because what we end up doing, unfortunately, is we see bacteria in the urine and we're like, oh, it's a UTI. We need to stop and ask ourselves, does this patient have any genitourinary symptoms? The reason this is incredibly important is that asymptomatic bacteria is pretty common in older adults. And we're not just talking about those in long-term care facilities, but even patients who are living in the community. And if we treat every single older adult that comes in with bacteria in their urine, we're going to end up with antibiotics overuse. And in some cases, miss the real reason that they're seeking care, because we're like, oh, we found the reason they're sick, the imaginary UTI. And we'll miss their cholecystitis or their paratitis or their meningitis or their acute MI or whatever it is that they're coming here for, and coming in with those non-specific symptoms and that bacteria that's been there for probably ever. And we just had no idea. Um, and in fact, in a study from coming from the ed, um, 43% of older adults that were diagnosed with a UTI ended up with a negative culture. So they never even grew anything in that urine. So imagine all of these people who had unnecessary antibiotics, and possibly whatever was bothering them to begin with completely missed. And I absolutely understand that this can be really tricky because differentiating symptoms in older adults is not always easy. There's quite a few older adults, even those who live in the community who have a baseline of urinary incontinence or urinary frequency. And that's why it's very important that we ask
0: how acute these symptoms are. That's a really interesting study that 43% who were diagnosed with UTI actually had a negative culture. And it can be tricky to know, well, should I go ahead and start some antibiotics or should I wait for the culture and risk them getting worse? And one thing that's really helpful is to look at past urinalyses and see, has it always looked like this or do they normally have three white cells and now they have 30 and that's a significant change. And, uh, that can be helpful if you have past data in your EMR. But if you're able to, and they look well, and it is very slight or subtle or not a slam dunk UTI, then waiting for the culture is a good option to see if it grows. And then you have to have a callback system where somebody will call in some antibiotics for them. What about diagnosing? Or, yeah, go for it.
1: Or even better than that. Don't send a urine on a patient that doesn't need it. And then you're not
0: confused about what to do with <laughs> that bacteria in the urine. Yes. Yes. And to be clear, if they do have significant white cells with urine or with nitrites, definitely we want to treat those things. But if it's asymptomatic and there's just a few bacteria, let those bacteria go to culture. See if there's even a positive culture. See if they have symptoms. Any other tips for clarifying how to diagnose this? Well, it's important to remember that urine
1: analyses and dipsticks are not 100% sensitive or specific which is something that we sometimes forget. An important shortcoming to remember is that nitrites, which we often depend on to say, Oh, it's a real UTI is absent with certain bacteria like Staph saprophyticus and enterococcus. So if a patient has symptoms, that is way more important than a lot of this other stuff that we're doing.
0: Yes. And nitrites often, it takes them a while to kind of generate in the bladder. So if they've been voiding more frequently, sometimes you miss those nitrites also. So how about treatment? Let's say we've decided, all right, they have some GU symptoms and it looks like they're infected on their, on their UA. What are the best treatment modalities? So for things like uncomplicated cystitis, the
1: recommendation is nitrofurantoin or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. And it's Pretty common that we hear people saying, "Oh, well, you can't give older adults nitrofurantoin." Well, that's not true. If their creatinine clearance is fine, which means that their creatinine clearance is above thirty mL per minute, then you can give them nitrofurantoin. You don't need to give them something else for that. Um, in patients who are much more complex than that, they have underlying comorbidities, multiple previous UTIs, then taking those three extra minutes to look for that prior urine culture and prior sensitivities is definitely going to be helpful in making sure that your patient gets the antibiotics that they need.
0: Yes. Prior culture data is key because occasionally you'll find somebody who has crazy multi-drug resistant bacteria, and then you realize, okay, nitrofurantoin might not work. And And they look really good at that moment
1: in time because they haven't gotten sick yet.
0: So you
1: can get completely, um, so you can completely miss that if you don't take a moment and take a look at their cultures.
0: So look at the cultures. That's one tip. And then for uncomplicated cystitis, nitrofurantoin, or trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. Personally, I don't love trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole because a lot of older patients do have some kidney impairment or chronic kidney disease And that can sometimes worsen the kidney disease or just the risk of Stevens Johnson's or other things like that. If we have other options, I prefer to use nitrofurantoin or in uncomplicated cystitis in women. I love phosphomycin for that. It's a one-time dose that they take orally. And especially for patients who have trouble getting transportation to pick up their prescriptions, or have other medications that they're on phosphomycin actually has quite good resistance patterns, meaning low rates of resistance and very few interactions with other medications like Warfarin or other things that commonly will interact with other antibiotics. So nitrofurantoin, a short course, or phosphomycin are my go-to. Phosphomycin though, by definition, has to be for uncomplicated cystitis. And the one-time dose is only for women. In men, you're going to need to do three doses. So they would have to go pick up a prescription. And nitrofurantoin, only for cystitis, not for pyelonephritis, not for sepsis, those kinds of things. So speaking of antibiotics, something that we do worry about that you alluded to is antibiotic overuse and either growing resistance patterns or C. diff. For patients. And I feel like we've just been seeing more C. diff lately. How can we prevent or reduce the incidence of C. diff? Well, apparently we're
1: not imagining things, Christina, because the incidence of C. diff has actually doubled over the past few years. So it's just mirroring how we're using antibiotics. In patients 65 and older, it's mostly due to antibiotic overuse. And that's how we can hopefully prevent that. So things like clinomycin, fluoroquinolones, third-generation cephalosporins, those are usually your big culprits, but in reality, it can happen with any antibiotics. The longer course, the multiple antibiotics, those things can also make it more likely. There are also increased risk with PPIs, so pro- proton pump inhibitors, diuretics, and non-steroidals, which a lot of our older adults are on these three medications. So that's definitely an increased risk there. Any pearls for diagnosis in this case? Well, when the patient comes in with your typical story of watery diarrhea, maybe some belly pain, maybe some leukocytosis, we usually send a stool sample for either a nucleic acid amplification test or an enzyme immunoassay. Now the nucleic acid amplification test is more specific and that's the one we commonly use, but the problem is that it does not differentiate between an active and an inactive infection. And it will stay positive in asymptomatic carriers as well, which is why most labs don't even allow you to send a second sample within seven days because it's like, well, that's not helpful. So that's
0: definitely a shortcoming that you need to know. So we give too many antibiotics. We, as a country, then patients get C-diff and now we have to treat the C-diff with more antibiotics. And there's been some changes in recent years for C. diff management. So what are the current recommendations? You're absolutely right. They
1: have changed the recommendation and metronidazole is no longer recommended as a first line for patients with C. diff. Your number one recommendation is vancomycin or fidaxomicin orally. And if a patient is having frequent or recurrent episodes, then you can add rifaximin to the vancomycin.
0: Okay, so to kind of recap that, If patients come in with no GU symptoms or no symptoms that are related to the possible UTI, you don't even send a urine. If you do send a urine or if one is sent and it's ambiguous, maybe just some bacteria, maybe just wait for the culture. You don't have to necessarily treat. If it's definitely a UTI, then treating with first-line agents like nitrofurantoin, or phosphomycin for uncomplicated UTIs or cystitis in women. Now, if it's a complicated UTI like pyelonephritis, or often if they have uh, indwelling catheters or in men, then we want to up our game usually to the IV antibiotics if needed, if they're sicker and need to be admitted to the hospital, or if they can be discharged on orals, I often will use ceftonir. It is generally very well tolerated and a little bit cheaper than cef So that is my go-to for the complicated UTIs or UTIs in men in this age group. Now let's turn back to other diarrheas. So we covered C. diff, but let's say they come in with other with diarrhea, and maybe don't have risk factors for C. diff. They haven't been on any recent antibiotics. They haven't had any community exposures. What other infectious diarrheas do we need to think about? So Salmonella, Shigella, and Campylobacter are frequent causes of bacterial
1: diarrhea in older adults. And just like any other infection, older adults may present atypically. So in one study, only 18% of geriatric patients with Campylobacter had bloody diarrhea, which is our classic symptom versus 92% of those who are below the age of 24. So if you wait for bloody diarrhea, you are going to miss those Campylobacter patients. It was very interesting for me to learn that Salmonella is the most commonly identified pathogen in nursing home outbreaks of bacterial gastroenteritis found in 52% of these cases and actually causing 81% of nursing home deaths from outbreaks of bacterial gastroenteritis. So definitely think of salmonella as well. When you're concerned, then you should give antibiotics empirically. If you are thinking of Shigella, if the patient just recently had an international travel with a temp of 38.5 Celsius or more, or if they're coming in with signs of sepsis. And when you are treating them, you definitely should include either Cipro or azithromycin as part of your regimen.
0: Any other pearls? So these patients coming in with diarrhea and we're thinking about C diff, or maybe we're thinking about salmonella outbreak or Shigella. If they've recently traveled any other pearls for taking care of these patients. An important thing that we should always think about is that older adults that are at higher
1: risk of severe dehydration because their thirst response is diminished and that can cause them to have postural hypotension falls and a whole bunch of terrible things. So something I like to think about is unless your older adult is very obviously fluid overloaded, then they're probably going to be a little on the dry side. I think that we have this over fear of giving older adults fluids, when in reality, they're just usually more dehydrated than we think they are.
0: Yes, dehydration is so common for the reasons you mentioned, or sometimes because of uh, mobility issues, they can't get up and get water as easily. And the thirst response is just diminished. So they can't tell that they're thirsty and and go get water as easily. Okay, so we've covered pneumonias. We've covered UTIs. The other big one is skin and soft tissue infections. What are some things we should be thinking about here?
1: Absolutely. Skin and soft tissue infections are definitely important in this age group. So cellulitis and erysipelas usually occur on the lower extremities. And they're usually either streptococcus or methicillin sensitive staph aureus. MRSA is usually something we need to think about if there's penetrating trauma or some sort of purulence
0: under that cellulitis. So we see cellulitis all the time. And then there's always the question of, is there an underlying abscess that we need to drain or is this potentially spreading to something more sinister? And the terrible, terrible flesh-eating infections that we want to always make sure that we're not missing, and usually they're relatively obvious unless it's early, but how can we make sure we don't miss a necrotizing infection? Well, we have to think about
1: it and have a high index of suspicion, and that is the only way we're going to pick up as many of those as possible, because... It's not going to be unique for this older adults present atypically patients can have things like pain out of proportion to the presentation. You can feel like the subcutaneous tissue is like hard or wooden. They can be very ill appearing and have some signs of systemic toxicity. They can have crepitus or evidence of skin necrosis, or very simply, they can just not respond to your initial antibiotics the way you think they would. And that is why it's incredibly important to make sure that your older adults come back for a wound check or whatever you want to call it in your shop where after they've been diagnosed with a skin infection, somebody actually checks on them and looks at it in 48 hours or so to make sure that we're going in the right direction and that we have clinical improvement and give our patients very clear instructions on what findings should prompt them to come back to the emergency department immediately. Another important thing to keep in mind is that with necrotizing infections, antibiotics alone are not the answer. The treatment is
0: surgery. The antibiotics are on the side. Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, this is relatively rare, but when we do see it, it's always a surgical emergency. Transfer the patient or get your, your, if you have surgery in-house, get them to the OR as quickly as possible. Any other important skin infections we should be thinking about? Last but not least, we cannot not talk
1: about shingles. Um, shingles are herpes is most common in older adults, and patients may present with just pain. And then a day or three later, they would have that typical vesicular rash. We should start antivirals as soon as possible to shorten the illness. So acyclovir, or valacyclovir, whatever we have access to. And the other reason we need to start that other than shortening the illness is that it decreases the incidence of postherpetic neuralgia. Which is actually pretty common in older adults. Around 50% of older adults with shingles are going to have this very annoying condition. And one thing that we talk about is that we shouldn't really start it more than 72 hours after the onset of symptoms because it's unlikely to be helpful. However, we need to make sure that no new lesions have formed because that's kind of like your tip off. If new lesions are still forming, then there is some benefit there to starting that a cyclovir of sorts, you
0: know, Danya, it's so funny. I've always thought of shingles as something that older people get. Right. And then this is, this won't be too, uh, too much information. Don't worry. But, uh, when I was pregnant with my fourth kid, I started getting this pain in my low back. I was like, what is going on? Like the skin was burning. And then a couple little spots appeared and I was like, this is so weird. And so I texted it to my dermatologist friend and she's like, um, I think that's shingles. And I mean, I do, I diagnose shingles all the time. It's so obvious you have unilateral dermatomal pain and then some vesicular lesions, or in this case, it was just like little red spots. And I was like, it just didn't compute to me that I could get shingles. I was in my you know, 30s at the time, and I just thought young people don't get shingles, but they do. Now, of course, it is more common in older patients, but young people can get shingles also. And then after I had that, and I've mentioned the story to some other people uh, who are also you know, younger adults, they're like, oh, yeah, I've had shingles too. So <laughs> not just a disease of older patients, but certainly can be more severe and more common. Okay. That's my little story for the day. All right. So take home points. What should we keep in mind? How can we take better care of our older patients who have infections? I definitely say,
1: go back to this article and take a look at it. It is so full with pearls. We definitely not have time to go through all of it, but I think the overarching theme of this whole thing is that older adults are going to present atypically. So we have to have a high index of suspicion for when they come in that they are one, having an infection and two, sicker than we think they are. And we need to have that good investigation and good follow-up in place to make sure that they are getting better. With pneumonias, CURB-65 is not enough because it can either push you too much in one direction because of age and underlying comorbidities. Um, the other thing is, and I can talk about this forever, Asymptomatic bacteria and UTIs, if they don't have symptoms and they're able to tell you that, then they don't have a UTI. Please stop treating that. Please don't send that urine to begin with. C. diff is on the rise. So any patient with diarrhea who has been on antibiotics, which sometimes feels like it's everyone ever, think of C. diff. And also remember that your older adult is more likely to be dehydrated than overhydrated when they've had diarrhea. So make sure that you give them IV fluids and check your hydration status. And last but not least, not all cellulitis is just good old benign cellulitis. It can be necrotizing fasciitis. So if they're not getting better, then that's one of your clues right there. Make sure they have the follow-up and that they know that they need to return and get that taken care of.
0: Well, Danya, thank you again for being on GemCast. It is always a pleasure to talk with you. And this is such a great topic that we've covered a whole breadth of different things within it. I hope this has been helpful for you as a listener. Keep in touch with us on Twitter or online. Thanks. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of GemCast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at gempodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.